engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. You know it's going to be bad when Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes out blasting Democrats for their treatment of Brett Kavanaugh. My goodness, welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. This is Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. There is scandal. It could undermine Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation or so the Democrats think. It appears there is a possibility there is an unnamed woman who claims that when she was in high school with Brett Kavanaugh sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, he graduated from high school in 1983, that it is possible that she and Brett Kavanaugh may have had intimate relations. This is a family program. We'll leave it there. She and Brett Kavanaugh in 1981 or 1982 may, while they were in high school, have done what high schoolers sometimes do without their parents knowing about it. And she told Diane Feinstein, the senator from California, sometime this summer, that all these years later, she now suddenly feels that he might have pressured her into doing it in 1982. So he's gone through a Bush White House appointment. He's gone through confirmation to the D.C. Court of Appeals and now on the verge of being a United States Supreme Court justice. There's a Me Too moment from 1982. And she told Dianne Feinstein in June. Now, if if I had a sound effect, you would hear the screeching tires. Wait. She told Dianne Feinstein in June? What did Dianne Feinstein do in June when she was told that Brett Kavanaugh might have coerced a fellow high school student into getting it on in the back of his mama's car? She did nothing. Nothing. She did not tell her fellow Democrats on the Judiciary Committee. She did not tell her fellow Democrats in the Democratic Caucus. She did not tell the FBI. She did not tell the Justice Department. She did not tell the White House. She did not tell or ask Brett Kavanaugh. She did not even bring it up during the hearings last week. No, no. She waited until the vote was scheduled after all the hearings, after all the interviews, after all the questions that could have been asked. She waited. And now she wants us to know she's referred it to federal investigators. So they should wait on voting for Brett Kavanaugh until there's a federal investigation of two high school students hooking up in 1982. Well, outside the statute of limitations, by the way, if there was anything untoward. You cannot make this up. They are desperate. And this really has everything to do not with Brett Kavanaugh, but with Dianne Feinstein. See, she's running for reelection against a Democrat in November, a very progressive Democrat who is accusing Dianne Feinstein of being too accommodating of Republicans. 
And because she's too accommodating of Republicans, she has to be defeated. So this is Dianne Feinstein willing to destroy a man's reputation to get herself reelected. Now, for perspective, Dianne Feinstein held on to this letter since June without telling anyone. For 20 years, spies for the Chinese military have worked for Dianne Feinstein. She apparently didn't know anything about that and didn't want that referred to investigators, but she wants a high school hookup from 1982 referred to federal prosecutors. This is a woman, they say Donald Trump is insane. I'm starting to wonder about her mental state. The whole thing is preposterous here. It is absolutely preposterous. Um, Before I delve down that role and and play the Ruth Bader Ginsburg audio, which you really want to hear, you need to know that if you're on 575 north of Holly Springs, it is raining. Waleska, you've got rain. Uh, More is moving into the area. If you head out towards Alabama on I-20, when you get past Douglasville, you're going to get rain. Uh, The closer you get to Alabama, the heavier the rain will get. Uh, That is God's way of telling you you have no business going to Alabama. Now, as far as Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Oh, sorry. I'm already getting a text from an angry friend of mine. You should not be texting while driving. I know you're driving. You know it's true about Alabama. Sorry. Nonetheless, let's play Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The the atmosphere in 93 uh, was truly bipartisan. The vote on my confirmation was 96 to 3. Even though I had spent about 10 years of my life litigating cases under the auspices of the ACLU board, uh, ACLU, and I was on the ACLU board and one of their general counsel. Or think of Justice Scalia, who is certainly a known character in, in what was it, 1986? He, he had been a law professor and written many things. He was, he had been on the D.C. circuit. And the vote was unanimous. Every Democrat and every Republican voted for him. But that's the way it should be. Instead of what has become a highly partisan show, the Republicans move in lockstep, and so do the Democrats. I wish I could wave a magic wand and have it go back to the way the way it was. Wow, you're reminded hearing this audio, that woman is ancient. She is ancient. I mean, that's like a, a voice almost beyond the grave. That Wow, she is what? what? <laughs> you can see that? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, remember, Sc- remember Scalia, he, he was a no... Scalia was a known <laughs> Wow, she's ancient. She is ancient. Are you Democrats really prepared to take the risk of two more years? <laughs> we may have a couple more seats to fill. Uh, beyond bread capital. Y'all, this is, she's absolutely right, though. It has become a farce. Republicans and Democrats march in lockstep. Uh, the majority party gets its way. They've gotten rid of the filibuster. Thanks, Harry Reid. 
and Brett Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court. He will be the next Supreme Court justice. And the Democrats are having this meltdown and they've decided they might as well malign him and throw everything they can at him and destroy his reputation, destroy his family if they can, all to try to collect a scalp they're not going to collect. They want to make it as painful as possible. A buddy of mine texted me earlier and said, well, what if this is just the Democrats really trying to make it so no Republican ever wants to be on the Supreme Court? Well, (laughs) yes, fair point. But I can assure you all they're going to do is incentivize Republicans steamrolling through more nominations. And in fact, Mitch McConnell has announced that they're going to stay in session over October, giving Democrats little time to campaign so that they can continue to vote for more justices to put on the Supreme Court if spots come available, but also judges on the courts of appeals and the district courts. They're going to stack the courts in anticipation of Democrats making gains in November. And there's nothing the Democrats can do to stop it. And stuff like this makes Republicans only want to do it even more. Push and stack the courts. It's 25 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Before I go to the phones, I got to tell you, there's something that every lawyer in this state does, and I used to be a lawyer. I'm still uh, inactive. I, for some reason, I've just never like turned in my... My, I, I stay inactive because, you know, my, my mama is convinced that one day I, if this radio thing doesn't work out, I may have to go back to practicing law, so I hang on to my law license. Uh, but... Every month I get the Georgia Bar Journal and I have my copy. It it showed up, I don't know when, while I was out of the office. I found it in my mailbox today. I don't know how long it's been sitting there. But every lawyer in the state of Georgia that I know, the very first thing they do is they flip to the attorney discipline summaries to see if anybody we went to law school with got in trouble. And then we flip to the obituaries to see if we went to law school and died. And then we flipped to the bench and bar briefs where it goes through all the people moving law firms and stuff, which happens all the time, to see if anyone we know got a war saying you'll be flipping there. It's like, hey, I know that guy or I know her or, or we we dated or what have you. And then occasionally you, you run through and you, you find pictures of friends of yours like um, – Chuck Estration from the from the state legislature is like, wow, you grew up since we used to go out drinking in law school. <laughs> now he's an adult. Anyway, now I'm going to go to the phones. Joe in Gainesville, you're next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Good afternoon. Uh, yesterday you made a point to that the House had uh, was pretty much over, that Democrats are going to take it. The Democrats have to hold every seat. They have to take 24 seats from, from the Republicans. And I'm just wondering... Have you gone race by race to determine which one of those tw- uh, 24 contested races Republicans are going to lose? Yeah, so, so or are you here's just looking the, at national polls? Well, not looking at national polls, looking at state polling. Here, here's the problem people have forgotten is in California now, it's uh, jungle primary where you have Republicans and Democrats running and in a primary and the top two finishers go on to run against each other. And in California, you've already had three Republicans uh, fail to make it to the general election. So in these places, you've already got three Democrats running against Democrats. So there's three. Um, You've got uh, the most open seats 
we've had since 1994, and it actually exceeds the 94 total. And in those open seats, the majority of those seats are seats that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, um, where you had a Republican. So those could go either way. It depends on the candidates. But the real issue, Joe, is Pennsylvania. The Democrats redrew the uh, districts in Pennsylvania, wiping out the Republican majority in the Pennsylvania congressional delegation. And they've drawn these districts so much for the Democrats that we know you're going to lose 10 Republicans in Pennsylvania. So you're down 10 in Pennsylvania just because of the demographic shifts. You're down three in California. So you got 13 there. So you need really... uh, 10 more to go. Uh, The math just isn't there for the Republicans on Pennsylvania and California alone for this coming year. Um, That's why I'm saying the Democrats are taking back the House. The Senate is another matter. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. Um, Before I get to those of you on hold, uh, Joe, I I hope Joe from Gainesville is still listening, um, because I went and and really dug into the data during the commercial break so I could give you a little more data on why, I mean, listen, I I don't want to say the Democrats absolutely are taking back the House, but why more likely than not the Democrats are taking back the House? Let me give you the breakdown. First of all, remember that uh, midterms favor the party out of the White House. They all they have going back to uh, Franklin Roosevelt. The only exception to that was 2002, and that was because of the, the 9-11 situation uh, and the war. Uh, right now, Republicans have 237 seats in the House, and Democrats have 193. There are six vacancies. Four of those vacancies are Republican. Two of those vacancies are Democrats. Based on the polling where we are right now in congressional districts, there are 30 toss-ups. You need 218 to have a majority. There are 202 solid-to-lean Republican seats. There are 203 solid-to-lean Democratic seats. There are 30 toss-ups. Of the solid Republican seats, you have 148. Of the solid Democratic seats, that means there's no way they're losing. You have 182. So you only have 148 that are absolutely no way they're losing Republicans and 182 Democrats. Now, there are 26 that lean Republican or are likely Republican. That means more likely than not they're going that way. Uh, You only have nine that are likely Democrat. Republicans have a built-in redistricting advantage. But now what about the true toss-ups? There are 20, there are 30 true toss-ups. Two of those are Democrat. 28 of those are Republican. So you've got in seats that are overwhelmingly Democrat. You have Republican Lobiondo in New Jersey. You've got Pennsylvania 5 with Congressman Meehan. It's a vacant seat now. He's gone. You've got in Pennsylvania 6, uh, Costello. And he's not seeking reelection, so there's an open seat there. In uh, you've got lean Democrat, that means they've got basically a 55% chance of winning based on the polling. You've got Arizona 2, Martha McSally's seat. I think Republicans probably can win that. It's an open seat. You've got Daryl Issa in California 49, uh, Elizabeth Ross Lighton in Florida 27. I think Republicans hold all those seats. 
But then you've got uh, Rod Blum in Iowa, probably going Democrat. In New Jersey, you've got uh, Freilingheisen, who is leaving. That's a vacant seat uh, in an area that has shifted to the Democrats. Hillary Clinton won that district. You got Charlie Dent, Pennsylvania 7. That one's going Democrat. Um, you've got Pennsylvania 17, uh, Rothfuss and Lamb. Uh, that's because the redistricting, there's a there's a weird issue there. Connor Lamb is technically in Pennsylvania 14 right now, but he's moving into Pennsylvania 17 because of redistricting. And you got Barbara Comstock. Barbara Comstock is Northern Virginia, highly Democrat, and the president just cut pay uh, for federal employees for next year. Uh, everybody thinks Comstock is gone. Maybe she can pull it off. She's running against a, a well-organized Democrat. So those are the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Democrats. Democratic seats right now. Where do you get the others? Let's go into races that I think actually have a real potential to go. There are a bunch. There are 28 Republicans and two Democratic toss-ups. The Minnesota ones, the Democrats, it's open seats and they're in Republican areas. Republicans may pick up those two. But then of the 28 Republicans, let me give you the states. you got five in California, one in Colorado, one in Iowa. You've got two in Illinois. Now, there are two in Kansas, only one of which I think is a real possibility, and one in Kentucky. I don't think Republicans lose that one. But you got one in Maine. You've got two in Michigan. You've got two others in Minnesota. You've got one in North Carolina that's treated Democrat. You've got two in New Jersey. You've got two in, Nor- in New York. You've got one in Ohio. You've got two in Texas, of all things. I don't know that Democrats can pick those up. But then you got two in Virginia and one in Washington State, uh, overwhelmingly in areas where Democrats have won. So the numbers are really there. For There are 92 competitive seats for the Republicans. There are only 13 competitive Democratic seats. So for Democrats to pick up, this is just playing the odds. Republicans have to hold all of their seats, most of which— are uh, 142 of which are safe Republican, but they've only got a 23-seat majority, and they've got 92 seats that are considered highly competitive. So it's playing the odds. The Republicans could still hold on, but it's not looking likely. Um, Before I go to break, I want to take Virginia's call. She's been waiting patiently. Virginia, welcome. Hey, how you doing, Eric? Good. I, I don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to let you go on and make your point. Yeah, I just wanted to say on the Kavanaugh thing, I heard you talking about it a little bit ago. I mean, come on. Uh, I, I am so tired of these people, these women coming up like, oh, this high school kid did this to me in high school. I'm like, no, 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 that's not a Me Too thing. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not into the Me Too thing, but I'm just saying that there are people who really were abused, and this marginalizes those people, these yes. kind of uh, cheapens it yeah and by the way there's breaking news on that front thanks for the phone call breaking news on that point the fbi says they're not going to bother to investigate this allegation against brett kavanaugh from 1982 it's 55 after the hour eric erickson here back to the phones we go marty and villarica welcome Hey, I, I, I'm not sure I trust polls. You know, I, 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 we got Philip on, on line six, and I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to both of you, but but Philip's point is that uh, we trusted the polls in 2016 and got it wrong. Trump won. Um, well, and, and 2014, Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter, you know, they showed them both. Yep, you know, exactly. Beats, and they both got roundly beat. Right, exactly. Uh, my point, though, is that you shouldn't trust polls, but you can trust the polling averages. Uh, the polling averages at the state level 
uh, had essentially in 2016, had you looked at the state level polling, it would have been obvious Donald Trump was going to win the Electoral College, even though he lost the popular vote. Most of the national polling, though, I mean, it was right. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote with like 2.5 percent of the vote. The polling average was 2 percent. So the polling got the popular vote right. We don't have the Electoral College in 2018. We, We had it for a presidential race. We don't. If you actually look at 2016 at state level congressional polling, the state level congressional polling was highly accurate in 2016. Uh, It was terrible in Georgia in 2014, and there is a reason for that, and that is we have a bunch of garbage pollsters in Georgia. I mean, if you actually looked at the pollsters in Georgia that got it right in 2014, they were all name-brand, well-known pollsters who called live live phones and cell phones, landlines and cell phones, and talked to live people. They didn't do robo-polling. They didn't do online polling. Um, We have so many fly-by-night pollsters in Georgia. And again, the ones that got it right were the ones that did good polling. Um, If you look at 2016 at the congressional level uh, and you go into the congressional district polling, you actually will find that there's a really good track record of those same name brand pollsters. So that's all we're doing here. But listen, you don't even have to look at the polls here. Every single president has lost at least 20 seats in the midterms. Republicans have 23 Um, You're really playing against the odds if you're picking that the Republicans hold on, and maybe they do, but the polling says otherwise. It is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News, the phone number 404-872-0750-1800, WSB Talk. The FEMA chief is under fire for use of official cars being inspected by the inspector general. Timely, timely effort, Democrats, to distract the FEMA chief during a hurricane. So if things go wrong, you can blame the president. am Am I doing it right here? I mean, uh, y'all, I I don't want to, but I need to. The president this morning tweeted out that he disagrees with the assessment of the 3,000 people dead in Puerto Rico, that there were only 18 people who died. Um, you know, the, the assessment is not precise, but... No one other than the president really disputes that um, at least 2,000 people died, not just from the hurricane, but from the, the after effects of the hurricane. But this is the problem here. The media has become so emotionally invested in blaming President Trump for a lot of corruption and incompetence that happened on the ground in Puerto Rico that the president has gone into defense mode, as have many of his supporters, and they're refusing to acknowledge the basic truth of the deaths because the media has so politicized it already that if they were to acknowledge those deaths, they would immediately have blame imputed to them for causing them that they didn't cause. I mean, for God's sakes, all those water bottles that sat on the runway in Puerto Rico, um, that wasn't President Trump's fault. That was people in Puerto Rico. There are some people who have tried to to explain away the president's tweet today about the deaths in Puerto Rico by saying that uh, only 18 or so people were actually killed by the hurricane. The president wasn't talking about the aftermath, but that's not really in, in his follow-ups. That's not the case. He was talking about the hurricane and its follow-ups. But again, many of the people who died in Puerto Rico did not die 
because of Donald Trump, FEMA, Congress, Republicans, or anything like that. They died because of incompetence on the ground in Puerto Rico they were not responsible for. Time and time again, we see the president go into defense mode and double down on things that aren't true, but he does so because the media has built up a blame game against him for so long. The only thing he can do is is go into defense and know that many of his supporters will defend him on this. If the media was not so invested in trying to destroy the president, I do wonder if he would have a greater propensity to say yes. 3,000 people died in Puerto Rico. It was a terrible tragedy, and we have much to do to clean up down there, but a lot of that is a is a state or territorial issue, and the federal government can't clean up Puerto Rico's political problems. The voters of Puerto Rico have to do that. And I, I think if he, if he went with that approach, perhaps, perhaps um, his point could have been made better. Uh, it, it was somewhat sad, though, today to see people double down. Oh, no, only 18 people died. No, no, all those other people, they're, they're still alive or they never existed. No, no, no. Thousands of people died. It wasn't President Trump's fault, uh, but they certainly died because of the aftermath of that hurricane. The hospitals losing power, taking weeks to get power back, uh, the unsanitary conditions, the mudslides, uh, collapse of infrastructure. Um, it, the death total in Puerto Rico spiked way above. I mean, you can look at a, a chart of the number of deaths in Puerto Rico per year, and there's this astronomical spike uh, in the weeks after Maria. Um, that's all related to the hurricane. And, and again, you used to be able to have these rational conversations, but you can't on any side now because everybody on the left is so emotionally invested in blaming the president. So the president and his supporters are emotionally invested in denying it all. No one can actually have an honest conversation that, yes, these multiple thousands of people died. What happened in Puerto Rico was terrible. It wasn't the president's fault. He's not the one who was in charge of hanging power lines. But we're not supposed to say that now because that makes you a racist when you point that stuff out. Just uh, the politicization of death from a storm is pathetic. Uh, I, I want to shift gears and hijack my own show and not talk about headlines for a minute. I got a text from my family. We have a couple that lives down the street from us. And several years ago, they lost their oldest son to a mitochondrial disease for which there's no cure. And they had another son who was perfectly fine and healthy. And then a year ago, he started showing signs of the same disease. And they've decided to stop treatment and to withhold food. He has fought this disease as long as he could. And this couple is going to be without children now both of their sons dying. Uh, the younger son, thinking he was disease-free, got married several years ago, so he will have a widow. And his parents, they're, they're a good Christian family. They go to church. They go to church with us. They're, they're actively involved in our kids' old school that's affiliated with our church. But, man, I hear these stories sometimes, and, you know, I, I understand people who get mad at God um, it's just, it's, it's, it's sad. So uh, I'm unburdening myself to you guys. Uh, so I'm not sitting here in commercial break trying to cry about something like this. It's just, it's sad to hear these situations. Um, a, a family losing their kids to a, a terrible disease. 
and it happens so often. We're we're doing the bourbon and butts tonight for people who contributed to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. So maybe this is timely. the The number of you who step up every year and help with a cause like this, but I, you know, I I I know some people in ministry, for example, who don't understand people who get mad at God. I mean, why be mad at the God of creation? Well, I mean, when you think about it, you you got this this. Uh, amazing, all-powerful God you believe in who can bring bread from heaven and he can bring water from rocks and he can bring Lazarus back from the grave and yet he's going to allow both of your children to die. He's going to allow you to die. He might might uh, allow your, your wife or your husband to die. My, my wife's got an incurable form of lung cancer um, that, that we're able to keep in remission. I, I totally get people being angry with God. Um, and, you know, this is the, the, the argument of the atheist. Uh, why would a good God let bad things like this happen? Why would a, a good God let your child get cancer or or let your children die or let your husband or your wife die or or bad things happen? Why, why do bad things happen if God is good? And I get that argument thrown in my face all the time by people who are atheists, uh, militant atheists online, on social media. Um, if your God's so good, why, why did he let this tragedy happen? Why did he let September 11th happen? Uh, and, you know, all I can tell you is, is there is a theological answer to it, but I don't think at times when families are grieving is the time for theological answers. It's the time to let them grieve. And, you know, you got an all-powerful God who can create the entire universe. He can stand someone being mad at him because they're grieving. I, I assure you he can. And the question is, what do they do with that grief and that anger, and do they come back to him? The theological answer is that we're sinners. We live in a fallen world. And now, now, nobody knows why God created the world so that Adam and Eve would do what they did. I mean, they had to have free will if they were created in the image of God, and their will was bent towards doing bad things after biting the apple. I get that. Um, but God knew everything that was going to happen. Why did he set it up this way? I have no idea. But he did. But I tell people all the time who are in these situations when the time comes to have the conversation that, you know, he he didn't, like, set this up and walk away. He actually came and has gone through it himself, um, being terribly beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross, and died and conquered death. Um, he, he didn't take the easy way out. Uh, so awful was what happened to him, the whole sky went black. No easy comfort to a family on the verge of losing a child or uh, spouse or what have you. And I, I understand that there are theological answers to these things, but sometimes it's just sad to hear these sorts of things. Um, I will tell you, though, that tonight, after the show is over, I'm going upstairs from where I am in the studio, and I'm going to thank 44 people who contributed money to help fight childhood diseases, childhood cancers, who understand, may have gone through, or, or have known loved ones who went through these things. Maybe um, their child came out fine on the other end, and maybe not. And they had to grieve. But it, it's nice to know, and this is just a, a reminder, I guess, uh, that so many of you were willing to step up for that. When I hear stuff like this, it just breaks my heart. It, it really does. And nobody wants you to come preach at them when they're grieving. Nobody wants you to come tell them, well, don't be mad at God. Uh, they they, they, they want to grieve. They want to be mad. It's just heartbreaking to hear. But then, of course, you know, you got so many of you who, in all the heartbreak, you, you step up, you find a purpose. It's one of the things I wrote in my book, Before You Wake, is that 
had my wife and I not gone through the health struggles we'd gone through in the last couple of years, I know so many people who told us, you know, our struggles gave them purpose, gave them meaning, or made them realize their life wasn't so bad. And even in our suffering, God's working in ways we don't understand. And sometimes it's to give other people a cause to care. And so many of you had cause to care and help us with Children's Health Care of Atlanta raising money. So thank you. Welcome back. It is 26 after the hour. Well, look, I I didn't want to open a, a bag of theological worms here. I appreciate the phone call. Yeah, you know, I've got to preach on this subject, the suffering family next month. I was I did a, a Georgia oral history thing uh, earlier today, and they were asking me about my preaching. I said, you know, I've never actually preached in Georgia. I always get asked out of state. It's like a prophet and welcome in their hometown. Nobody wants to hear me preach in Georgia, but uh, I've had this opportunity several times, and Russell Moore actually asked me to just come out and talk uh, at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, National Conference on the Family in uh, Grapevine, Texas in October, and the subject is on the suffering family. So a bit on my heart, uh, turning more into a sermon than a speech, which is good. I always like to get in a pulpit occasionally. It's so nice to actually preach instead of talking politics all the time, but uh, sometimes churches get queasy. You're a political talk show host. We don't want you in the pulpit. Some of our congregation will be mad. Baptists. <laughs> Nonetheless, I got to talk about the subject. And But thank you. Thank you for your phone calls. Um, there's just it, it's, it's not really storytelling time. When we come back, though, we got to move on. Uh, John Kerry has all but admitted he's been talking to the Iranians. We got some phone calls on that. And, well, what if the Republicans keep the House? You know, it is still possible they could keep the House. We'll talk about the freakout that would ensue. Hey, I got to give you all a heads up on the radar real quick. There is a line of storms moving towards coming uh, from the northeast. Uh, now, I want to go to the phones. I want to go to Joe in LaGrange. Welcome, Joe. How are you? I'm great, Eric. How are you? Good. I, I'm interested in your thoughts regarding John Kerry and the meetings that he's had with the Iranians. Yeah. So, you know, he's if all but admitted it. He did not. Let, let me just say he was confronted with it. And he would not deny it was so that he has met with the Iranians trying to build support uh, for European countries to work with the Iranians to undermine President Trump on the Iran deal. That is extraordinary. Uh, Now, there are all sorts of people who will scream about laws uh, that he may have broken, laws that haven't ever been enforced and are of dubious constitutionality regarding uh, talking to foreign powers. What's really amazing here is that Democrats are screaming about precedent set uh, by Republicans being so antagonistic towards Barack Obama. Well, now we're upping this game. This is this is crazy talk that, that, that a former secretary of state would try to undermine the existing foreign policy of the United States. But of course, he did that in Vietnam as well uh, with, with the with the communist Vietnamese. So it's no surprise that a man of his character would do something like that. Nonetheless, I, I do think this requires uh, demands, in fact, a congressional investigation. Uh, maybe they should free up some resources by letting Mueller do his job and, and get one of these House committees that's looking at Russia collusion to instead look at collusion with the Iranians by the former secretary of state. 
It's it really is dumbfounding to me that John Kerry would do this. And by the way, there's an entire uh, structure from the Obama White House that is in place right now working to undermine President Trump. The other thing here that I do need to let you know is that President Trump has some remedies to this. He and John Bolton can escalate uh, the the various um, penalties and sanctions and withdrawals from previously agree, uh, agreed agreements. He, he can escalate all that stuff. He hasn't yet, and he should, because it is very, very clear that John Kerry and a remnant of the Obama White House are working to undermine his foreign policy. And this is all about legacy building for Barack Obama. I, I got to play some audio for you, by the way. The media is positively gaga over Barack Obama coming onto the campaign trail. Uh, the Washington Free Beacon put together this montage. He's back. Barack Obama breaking his silence. Obama actually breaks his silence on Donald Trump. President Obama is silent no more. Well, the time for quiet appears to be over. Obama delivered the moment Democrats, and let's face it, many in the world writ large, have been clamoring for. That Obama had been kind of reluctant to come out and be so eviscerating publicly. Barack Obama, he did not mince words. He's been holding back on uh, his return to the campaign trail, clobbering President Trump. And I think that was really a well Welcome message from Democrats and Republicans. President Obama might as well have ridden into today's speech on a horse. For President Barack Obama scorched President Trump. I thought he was going to be held back a little bit. He didn't hold back at all. No, not even a little bit. Comes out there and says, very eloquently, the obvious. This isn't hopey, changey Obama. This is, listen, <laughs> this is what's up right now with this with this administration. And it- I mean, why are we so thirsty for this message? Obama versus Trump. Media is titillated, pundits are panting about who's better. Yeah, the media love fest. Yeah, classic Obama. The media love fest over Barack Obama. Y'all, I actually think he does more harm than good. This is what I wanted to get to. We got a lot of a lot of you who are like, how do you say the Republicans are going to lose? Listen, I mean, going back to Franklin Roosevelt, every president's party has lost about 20 seats in the House of Representatives except for 2002. So you got the 20-seat average in there, and you got historically low popularity for the president, lower now than when he ran for office. You've got a bunch of open seats, more open seats for the Republicans now than even in 1980, in 1994 with the Democrats. Uh, all of these things suggest the Democrats will take back the House of Representatives. But I'm in the camp that says it's not going to be as many seats taken as they—I think they're going to take it back, but it's going to be very close— Some people are saying it's going to be a 60-seat wave. I don't think it is because Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have decided to reassert themselves, and they are deeply unpopular across the country, uh, except with Democrats. Independent voters don't like them either, and that's just going to fire them up. People are going to hold their nose and say, look, I don't care for Trump, but my goodness, I don't want these people back in charge. I don't want Nancy Pelosi in Congress and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton gloating. That's going to have an impact on the election. It's 54 after the hour. Eric Erickson here about to head upstairs to Bourbon and Butts with 44 of my new best friends who helped Children's Healthcare of Atlanta this past year. Good number. Um, and thanks to everyone helping out with that. Y'all, um, I I don't want to dwell on depressing news. I really don't. I, I'm, let, me, let me talk about Dana Lash for a minute. Uh, Dana Lash is a friend of mine. 
And she is in the news today because she did a, a monologue bit at the end of her NRA TV show about Thomas the Tank Engine. And, you know, Thomas the, the Train is a blue train with a gray face, and apparently the the producers have gotten all into diversity and have decided that they need uh, other trains of other races and ethnicities. Now, I, I did not realize that a blue train with gray face was a symbol of, of white power, but apparently uh, some people think so, and they're going to have a specifically... Uh, African-themed train with the the train will supposedly be coming from Kenya and and have a darker face than the gray faces. You know, there's only one white dude in in Thomas the Train, and that's Sir Topham Hat. It's the show is just I don't know. Ever since they got the George Carlin episodes are gone now that he died, they got Alec Baldwin or whatnot on the American series. In any event, Dana was pointing out that it's just ridiculous that you're going to look at a blue train with a gray face and say, oh, oh we, we need diversity here. We, we need a specifically um, racially themed train to combat these blue trains with gray faces. And her, I guess, graphic designers put uh, clan hats, uh, clan hoods on these trains and like, oh, oh, they, they really are racist. Well, of course, it got blown up. If you watch the, If you watch her monologue, it is within the bounds of reason, even if you disagree with her. But the left is piled on. USA Today is is running this thing about the angry attack on Thomas. She wasn't angry. She was largely laughing at the whole ridiculousness of thinking that blue trains with gray faces are somehow symbols of whiteness uh, that need to have specifically diverse elements to it. It, it. The whole thing's ridiculous. And, of course, the left is trying to deplatform her. They want to get rid of the NRA TV app from uh, Apple TV and the like, and they're using these controversies. Now, I think the NRA needs to be more careful. They need to probably tone it down for a while in the light of the Alex Jones stuff. Uh, but there was nothing unreasonable about her monologue. And, and the outrage from the left is all about trying to throw these people, the NRA, Dana Lash and the like, off TV, radio, you name it. It, it is We're going to be fighting this for a while. The Alex Jones stuff has just emboldened so many people on the left.